I'm going to steal this music stand and all the music I'm going to put here. And I'll try to remember to put it back when I'm done. I want to begin by reading just a very short passage from Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is from the first chapter. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Please pray with me. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And resting in you, Lord, help us to hold fast to the sound teaching you've passed on to us. Help us to live faithful, devoted lives. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Normally, Jason, I guess, would be here to introduce me, but this is actually my third time preaching here. So I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm Steve Fowle. I'm in my day job, a professor of theology at Loyola University. I've been there for 25 years. Um, Before that, I taught at a small seminary in England um, where I did my graduate work. Uh, I worship at the Episcopal Cathedral and have since we arrived in Baltimore, but I often preach and teach in churches in this diocese or in dioceses around the country, Um, and occasionally I come here to New Hope to preach, and I'm always happy to do that. Um, The first time I came to preach here, and maybe some of you remember that, maybe most of you have been graced to repress that, um, I spoke about uh, just war and pacifism. It was right when the uh, Iraq war was breaking out. And uh, you all were very free to ask questions and uh, discuss things, raise your hands, when ever I said something that wasn't clear to you or you wanted to discuss that further. And this sermon is more like that in that um, we'll be covering some things, some of which may be very complex or at least appear complex to you. So if at any point you have a question, please just raise your hand. I will try to remember to ask uh, periodically if you've got questions, but if I forget that, just raise your hand. Um, Jason invited me today to come to talk to you about the rule of faith. Now, I've done a good deal of teaching and writing about this, but I've never given a sermon about the rule of faith. And those of you who know the Bible well will already sense that the phrase rule of faith does not appear in Scripture, and you'd be right in thinking that. Instead, the term comes from the theology of the second, third, and fourth centuries. I do not, however, plan to preach on the history of this period, as exciting as that might be. Instead, I want to tease out from that passage in 2 Timothy that I just read the concerns and issues that might lead Christians, past and present, to treat the idea of the rule of faith as something crucial to our capacity to live lives of faithful worship and practice. So I'll begin by reflecting a little bit on Paul's advice to Timothy. Then I'm going to show that as Christians try to follow Paul's advice, they face several conceptual challenges. And then I want to show how the rule of faith is the church's way of addressing those challenges. And then finally, I want to suggest that the rule of faith is not so much a tool for individuals, but a resource for Christian communities. That is, if we're going to make use of the rule of faith, then we also have to work to form our communities in particular ways. Well, that's a lot to cover. It would normally take me six or seven hours of lecturing to get through that with an undergraduate class. I don't intend 
to do that this morning, but I do need to get moving. Towards the beginning, then, of, of Paul's second letter to Timothy, he urges Timothy to hold fast to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He then goes on to ask Timothy to guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Yes? 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. If we're to hold to the standard of sound teaching, then we and all Christians, Christians in Timothy's day down to the present, face three particular challenges. And these are challenges that go beyond the challenges posed by our sin, our disobedience, and our manifest capacities for self-deception. All of those are real challenges. I don't want to play those down at all, but I would not presume to preach to you about those things until I knew you all a lot better. The first challenge to holding to the standard of teaching that we have received has to do with situations that that teaching never directly addressed. Here are a couple of of examples, maybe overly simple examples. Think of the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy are pretty clear that keeping the Sabbath holy requires that we do no work. And they also give some examples of what counts as work that you're not supposed to do. But work in the ancient world is very different from work today. Hence, questions like, does turning on an electric light count as work? To Jews, yes. What about driving a car to church or synagogue? Again, yes. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath. And of course, what is the incandescent bulb or the internal combustion engine, except lots of little fires that you've lit, right? Now, I don't know where things are going if we go to electric cars, if you can use an electric car or not. But you can search the scriptures from beginning to end, and this will not come as a surprise to you. And I assure you, there are no references to electric lights or cars. Well, how do you keep to the sound teaching that you've received in circumstances that teaching never imagined? Of course, we see a similar situation even worked out in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul has to address the question of whether Christians can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Again, a question I suspect most of you have never addressed. But if you lived in the ancient world, it wasn't like you could go to the supermarket and go to the non-idol meat section of the supermarket and get meat there. Almost all the meat available to you in any city in the ancient world had been sacrificed to some idol. So unless you were doing it yourself at home, which you could do if you were a farmer in a rural area, but not in an urban area like Corinth, you had to think about this. And in Paul's previous visits with the Corinthians, he had never spoken directly about this. So in 1 Corinthians, he works through the various options And over the course of several chapters in the letter, gives them some idea of how they should address this problem. Now, no doubt, Paul wanted the Corinthians to have used their own theological reasoning a bit better than they did, but it's also true that he'd never spoken to them about meat sacrifice to idols. So here's the problem in a nutshell. No matter how deeply we hold to the standard of sound teaching that we've received, no matter how firmly we grasp onto it and refuse to let go, we can't avoid having to extend that teaching to address circumstances it never was intended to address. So that's one conceptual challenge. The second challenge is kind of the flip side of this. If one challenge arises from having to use sound teaching to address very new and different situations, another challenge arises from the fact that new and different situations will change the way sound teaching and practice are understood. Here's an example. Imagine we're going back in time 
to Italy in the 13th century. Sounds good, huh? Warm, pleasant. And we're back on the streets of some Italian town in the 13th century, and we see walking towards us a man in a coarse brown robe held together by a rope around his waist wearing a pair of sandals. Being well-versed in the life and times of the 13th century, we know that that man's dress tells us something about him. He is wearing the clothing of the poor. He is identifying himself with the poor. In fact, he is poor. Now, we're pulled back to the 21st century, and we're down in the inner harbor, and we see a man walking towards us in a coarse brown robe, held together by a rope around his middle, wearing sandals. Again, that man's dress tells us something about him, but it is not telling us that he's wearing the clothing of the poor. Instead, it says, here's a man who is in some way connected with religion. He is probably amiable, if not slightly eccentric, um, but it does not tell us that he is identifying with the poor. It does not tell us that he is poor, even though that might be true. Now, my point here is not to be critical of the Franciscans, right? My point here is to say that what, what signified something very clearly in the 13th century no longer signifies the same thing today, not because the Franciscans have abandoned the sound teaching that was handed on to them, but because they've held on to it so closely and the world around them has changed so much that it no longer says the same thing. The point here is that the very same action or pattern of actions that indicate one thing in one situation means something very different in changed circumstances. Even if we faithfully do and say the same things over and over and over again, the change in circumstances will cause people to understand those teachings and actions differently from their original formulation. I was very gratified this morning to see you um, reading passages from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and you know that the Book of Common Prayer, perhaps, you know, um, at least for the Episcopal Church, was updated in 1979. And one of the changes that was made in that was that the phrase, the Holy Ghost, was changed consistently to the Holy Spirit. Because the word ghost in 16th century English meant one thing, but it conveys something very different for us. And for Episcopalians or Anglicans to keep talking about the Holy Ghost didn't convey the same thing to modern ears that it did to Elizabethan ears. Doing the same thing over and over again in changed circumstances, even, even if it's a mark of your fidelity to your tradition, can sometimes mean something different simply because the world around you has changed. So those are two separate challenges. And the third one has to do with how we organize and interpret the various pieces of sound teaching which we're supposed to guard and hold fast. For us, and for the overwhelming majority of the history of the church, this sound teaching was found in Scripture. Scripture itself, however, has a variety of pieces that need to be properly organized and interpreted in order to maintain and establish sound teaching. Here's an example. The first followers of Jesus maintained Jesus' own commitment to the Scriptures of Israel what we now call the Old Testament. Now, although there were some challenges to that commitment early on, the early Christians understood that they could not hope to call on the same God that Jesus called Father if they didn't also share 
Jesus' commitment to the Old Testament as a source for revealing the Father. Nevertheless, one of the central assertions of the Old Testament is that there is just one God worthy of our attention and worship. Here are some examples from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. From Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. From Isaiah, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And again from Isaiah, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. There is only one God. I think you get the picture. Or at least only one God that's worth your time and attention and worship. The first Christians maintained that commitment. In fact, the very first followers of Jesus happily worshipped in the synagogues, in addition to gathering with their Christian friends for worship. They saw no conflict in doing both of those things. At the same time, they started to say things like this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or, although he was equal to God, he did not consider that equality something to be exploited. And then again from Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, here's a bit of a quandary. The first Christian's commitment to the Old Testament tied them to a view of God's singularity. At the same time, they made claims that Jesus was God, and they worshipped him as God. Well, it's not really all that surprising that some Jews Jewish opponents of these early Christians accused them of worshiping two gods. Well, my point here is not to point out a flaw in the view of the earliest Christians, far from it. But their commitment to taking seriously both the Old Testament and assertions about Jesus that came to be part of what we know as the New Testament raised a serious challenge for them. Their claims about Jesus and their claims about the one God needed to be organized and understood in a way that enabled them to make sense of both of those claims. Well, there are a number of possible ways to do that. But most of the ways that people developed came at great cost to the shape of Christian faith and belief. The easiest ways of resolving this tension left us with a Jesus who is not quite divine. And a Jesus who's not quite divine is not capable of saving us and bringing us into the presence of the one God. The best but much, much harder way of doing this resulted in the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. So here we have three separate challenges. They're all kind of related to each other, but they're each distinct. The Christians past and present face as they seek to hold fast to the sound teaching that they've received. So the first challenge, again, is making this challenge address situations that the sound teaching never initially talked about making sure that holding fast to the sound teaching conveys the same sort of thing in our situation that it conveyed in its initial situation, and then organizing the various pieces of those sound teachings or organizing the various pieces of the teaching so that it's sound teaching. All of these challenges can and have been addressed by believers over time. All those challenges, though, all point to one thing. 
They point to the fact that no matter how tenaciously we hold to the teaching passed on to us in Scripture, we cannot avoid the hard work of interpreting Scripture and the teaching that Scripture conveys in the light of the circumstances that we find ourselves in now. Now, of course, Paul promises Timothy and us the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us. And that's important, but it does not get us out of the obligation to interpret the teaching to which we're to hold fast. Well, I don't know how much you all do this in your church, but you only really have to have been involved in one small group Bible study to know that when Christians get together to interpret the Bible, discussions, disagreements, and sometimes arguments are par for the course. Now, I argue for a living, so I'm very comfortable doing that. But, but lots of folks are not, and I understand that. But given the challenges, given those three challenges that I've just laid out, argument, or at least disagreements and discussion about those disagreements are exactly what we should expect. It's built into the notion of having scripture. Interpretation, disagreement, and debate are built into the Christian life, and we should not worry about that fact. Now, that's not to say, of course, that all disagreements and all arguments are equally edifying. They're not. And of course, um, those of you who bear the scars of brothers and sisters speaking the truth to you in love um, will know that this can be done very badly at times. Um, so that's not, my, my point is not to lift up the worst sorts of arguments you've ever had and say that's normal and you should rejoice in that. Um, but to simply say, as people of God, Discussion, debate, and argument is built in to the notion of having scripture. The alternative, the only alternative that I can see of letting, of avoiding that, is to let go of the teaching that's been passed on to us and let each person make up their own standards of faith and practice as they move from one moment to another. Sometimes I think my own church does exactly that. We are a people, we Christians are a people called to an ongoing debate and discussion with ourselves, inspired and directed and guided by the Holy Spirit, over how to interpret the teaching to which we are to hold fast. We just can't get out of that. There's no way around it. Unless you want to do, have a sort of do-it-yourself faith that you create from moment to moment. Now, Different churches negotiate that differently. Some have a central teaching figure or a central teaching office um, who makes all those interpretive decisions for everybody. Um, others have a much more, um, for lack of a better term, democratic way of doing it. And most churches fall somewhere in between those two. Wherever you all stand on this, and I'm not exactly sure where you all stand on that spectrum. I know the teaching authority has arrived, though. Um, two things can help. The first is what the church has traditionally called the rule of faith. I'm finally getting to the topic, right? Um, the rule of faith emerged in the early centuries of Christianity as a kind of summary of Christian believing. It became, it served as the definitive way of organizing the various strands of the biblical story into a coherent whole. And the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which I, I had laid out for you and I hope most of you picked up, those are formal examples of the rule of faith from the early church. Sorry? Well, we get 
Tertullian talking about the rule of faith in the second century, um, 140s, 150s. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, a little later into the third century, and Origin of Alexandria also, it becomes a phrase that's in fairly common currency in the mid part of the second century, and that carries on really into the third and fourth centuries as well. And it's still a phrase that, that Christians will, will use. Oh, 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 sorry. Um, 323. Now, having said that, these things, you need to understand that in, in the second, third, and fourth centuries, it's not like somebody typed this all up on a computer, pressed print, and it was there, done. Right? So it takes some time um, for all of that to work out. So if you were in a church, say, um, in Asia Minor, this creed coming out of the Council of Nicaea might have reached you fairly early, say 328, 329. But if you're in the western part of things, say in Alexandria and Egypt, or maybe even in Rome, it might take a little longer to get there. And of course, these things sort of take a while to be solidified because remember, printing is not, there's no movable type printing, so it gets written down. And of course, even something as short as the creeds, when they get written down, you know, if the three of you were to write it, copy it down, there might be some variation. You know, so sometimes there were variations. So before you get a really solid um, formulation, it's towards the latter part of the fourth century, say around the year 380. And of course, you remember that the Nicene Creed is designed to resolve an argument, an argument about Jesus's divinity. You know, is he really God, or is he, is he kind of more like us who gets, somebody who gets a really big promotion into being God? And Christians, each side desiring to be really faithful, argued pretty vociferously about this. And the more intense an argument is within a congregation, the longer the resolution takes, right? I'm sure you've had some arguments here. I don't know what they are, and I don't need to know. But, but the more intense they are, and the more important they are, the longer it takes the resolution to kind of filter out to all aspects of the community and to be accepted. And it, would be, it was the same with the Council of Nicaea. So by 380, so 60 years, 55, 60 years after the, the Council of Nicaea, its, its view of things is pretty well cemented across Christianity. The Apostles' Creed, though, you asked about too, that's a much harder thing to date. Um, in the second century, but it's very hard to actually fit, put a date on because it never actually takes on the sort of formality that the Nicene Creed does. Does that kind of get it? I, I know I've just given you sort of windows rather than days. Like it's not March 14th, 328. I mean, we just, we don't have that sort of precision. Um, but does that get it, kind of what you're asking about? And these are, these are formalizations. The rule of faith, like these things, kind of has some rough edges to it. Not, not every branch of the church sees this exactly the same way, but they see it enough in common that they can talk to each other and communicate with each other. So when we call this the rule of faith, on the one hand, it makes it sound like the rules of baseball or the rules of football. It's not like a set of rules that way. It sets parameters within which 
faithful Christian debate and discussion were to take place. Interpretations that can fit within the parameters were things to be held on to, and those that couldn't fit within those parameters came to be seen as inadequate or inappropriate interpretations. So there's a regulated diversity of views within the rule of faith. If you think, here's, instead of thinking of it as a sort of rules for football or baseball, think of it this way. Imagine Christianity as a language. Well, then holding fast to the teaching passed on to us is like learning to speak Christian and learning to speak it properly. If you can imagine that, then the rule of faith represents the grammar of Christianity. Mastering the grammar is a necessary step to become a fluent speaker of Christianity, but it's not the same thing as actually speaking Christian. The grammar both indicates flawed ways of speaking, but it also allows for a rich variety. It even allows for the creation of new idiomatic terms and phrases. Now, as someone who teaches young people, I am always interested in students mastering the grammar of English. But I also recognize that knowing the grammar of a language, as important as that is, is not the same thing as speaking the language. And those of you who studied a foreign language in, in high school or college without ever having to speak it on a day-to-day -day basis know that you can really master that grammar. And then if somebody plunks you down in the middle of Madrid, no matter how well you've mastered that grammar, you don't yet speak Spanish. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> but if you stayed there in Madrid for a couple of weeks, all of a sudden you'd realize, I'm speaking Spanish. But you need to be among native speakers to do that. Right? And when Paul urges Timothy and us to hold fast to the teaching we have received, he is, in effect, urging us to become masterful, fluent speakers of Christianity. And the rule of faith is necessary as a way of mastering the grammar, but it's not the only thing. If the rule of faith is there to help regulate our speaking and our thinking and our acting as Christians, the other important resource for us is the Christian communities to which we are bound. These communities are the context in which we learn to speak Christian and where we learn to exercise our linguistic skills. It's like being placed in Madrid. With the rule of faith can give you the grammar, but you've got to be amongst native speakers for an extended period of time before you can really speak Christian. So you catechize and you teach new believers, young and old, and that's like teaching them the grammar of, maybe even teaching them the grammar of their second language. And you do that in the hopes that they will become fluent speakers of Christian. So it's within communities who are practicing speakers of Christian that the rule of faith takes on flesh and bones that the grammar lives as people learn, often through trial and error, how to speak ever more fluent versions of Christianity. And of course, what that also means is that as, as you move from this community to another community, or you engage in conversation with other Christian communities, you're going to find out that for the most part, you do speak Christian, but they have some idioms that you don't have. They have some phrases you don't have. This was brought home to me with um, depressing clarity in my very first teaching job. Um, I got a, a short-term teaching job at a, a small college in England. And to celebrate and to prepare for this, I went out to uh, Oxfam, which is sort of the English equivalent of goodwill, and bought a suit. And I had the suit altered to fit me, and it was great. It was very, very sharp looking. 
And I went down, and the first day I was teaching, I was actually commuting and living on campus. I spent five hours in the classroom teaching. And often, um, kind of sitting on a desk, you know, with my knee uh, like that. And I got back to my room, and I took off my pants, and I saw there was a hole about the size of a silver dollar right here. Had no idea. Now, the next time I met that class, I said, I suspect that many of you, and I, I knew this was going to strike them as odd, but I, I wanted to make a point, uh, that many of you noticed the hole in my pants. And of course, they all turned very red, and they were scandalized. Because in England, these are trousers. Pants are what you wear under trousers. <laughs> but I use that to show them both of us, both I and you, are native speakers of English. And yet, here, at a very crucial moment in communication, we have a slightly different vocabulary. right? So my point is that as you engage other branches of the church, both past branches of the church and present branches of the church, you're going to recognize both that you speak Christian but that you also, you, you speak Christian enough that you can communicate, but occasionally, and sometimes at these very embarrassing moments, you're going to realize you have a slight difference in vocabulary or idiom. That's simply par for the course. And our aim, our primary desire then, is through that trial and error, to become ever more fluent speakers of Christianity. Now, of course, Christianity is like a language in a lot of ways, but it's not just a language. Christianity is that lived interpretation of the gospel in specific contexts, specific times, and specific places. It is faithful worship and practice as much as it's faithful believing. And it's always important to remember that whenever we're tempted to take the illustration of Christianity as a language and press on it so hard that we end up thinking of Christianity as only a bunch of words. Well, I began by telling you I was not going to preach about your sin, your disobedience, or your self-deception. And I plan to keep to that. But some of you, however, maybe a lot of you, may feel that this introduction to the rule of faith has presented you with the importance of interpretation and, and the discussions attendant on, on interpretation and the debates and disagreements that are part of holding fast to the standard of teaching. And I've talked about how the rule of faith presents you with a regulated diversity of beliefs and practices, and that may be just what bothers you. The rule of faith may not work to rule out as many beliefs and practices as you might wish. Instead of parameters within which a regulated diversity can flourish, it might be nice to have a bright line clearly distinguishing good from bad. Certainly, there are days when I wish for that. I agree that if you imagine that Christianity should always only say one and only one thing about an issue or a practice or a belief, then the rule of faith is going to seem way too open-ended for you. But recall the three challenges that all Christians have always faced that I laid out at the outset of this sermon. And in doing that, I wanted to indicate that thinking of Christianity as only ever one thing, comes with its own set of problems. The problem that Christian worship and practice, guided by the rule of faith, faces is its inherent flexibility is too vulnerable to our persistent failures. To those times when rather than holding fast to the teaching passed on to us, We've abandoned that teaching, deceived ourselves about our own sin, and broken faith with God 
and each other. You don't have to be a master of church history to point to some of the most flagrant times when Christians have used their scriptures to justify some of the most appalling things, like the kidnapping and enslavement of Africans in this country, or in the biblical justifications of apartheid in South Africa. Those two come immediately to mind. The flexibility, the diversity of the rule of faith always has that danger associated with it. That we will take something, we will take the sound teaching that we're trying to hold on to and mold it to our own self-deceived desires, embody a set of practices and beliefs that are chronically sinful, and then cover it up by calling it Christian faith. That is a problem. The rule of faith cannot guarantee that we will not distort our Christian lives in ways that lead us into sin. But it's crucial to remember one thing, maybe a big thing, but this, that although God does not delight in our sin, God does delight in forgiving us. Indeed, God so delights in forgiving us that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, of forgiving just as we have been forgiven. And as long as practices of forgiveness and reconciliation are an active part of any church's common life, then I think we can common, confidently allow the rule of faith to guide us as we seek to hold fast to the sound teaching that has been passed on to us, relying on the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, I promised you at the beginning of this that I would regularly ask you if you had questions, and I have not done that at all. So, I'm sorry, but if you have questions now would be the time to ask. Sorry, yes, I'm sorry. Like in English? Uh, I mean, in English, we uh, ag agreement of subject and verb I don't think is up for negotiation. Um, I, I would say that there is enough universal agreement to allow speakers of English across the whole world to communicate with each other relatively effectively, while at the same time, there are some edges that need negotiation. I think it's very much the same with the rule of faith as a sort of grammar. There is enough commonality and regularity to allow Christian to be spoken by people all over the world, and yet also to kind of account for those occasions when we have misfires in communication. But the only way to figure out those misfires is to be in conversation, to stumble, then to discuss and figure out where that miscommunication happened, why, and what we might do to make it work. And of course, that is, that's where the practices of forgiveness and reconciliation are so crucial. Because if those aren't there, if I can't rely on you and I participating in that ministry of reconciliation together, even if we live at opposite ends of the world, when we speak Christian to each other and we stumble, our communication misfires, we have no incentive to try and resolve that. So does that, does that help get at that?
it seems to me that um, these things are conditioned and energized by our circumstances. Uh, so let me pick the, let me sort of play with the example you offered. Um, I suspect that unless you're regularly commuting up to New York and deeply engaging in those Christians up, who are engaged in the sort of ministries you are talking about, I, I wouldn't devote that much time yet to trying to understand that. But if I had to do that for folks I, whose paths I crossed daily in downtown Baltimore or in West Baltimore, I'd make the effort to do that because that's where my life hits. Um, that's, you know, it's the circumstances of your life that are going to press on you to expand your knowledge of Christianity or expand your vocabulary and, and capacities to speak Christian when and as you need to. Um, when, when I was in graduate school, um, we lived in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England, and it's surrounded by coal mining communities, and there was an enormous um, upheaval in the coal industry. I suppose maybe that's true here, too, where mechanization was creating fewer and fewer jobs. Um, the unions were increasingly hostile to management. And what you found was that coal miners, who had very little formal schooling, very little interest in reading, would never read a book for pleasure, became daily readers of the Financial Times, the equivalent of what we have as the Wall Street Journal. Not just readers, but avid, close readers of the Financial Times, because they knew that understanding what was said in that paper was crucial to their life. They wouldn't have done that if it wasn't a, a sort of impinging pressure on them. So I think it's partly our attentiveness to those impinging pressures that are going to lead us to try and understand certain versions of Christianity or certain versions of Christian, speaking Christian, differently than others. Um, and so uh, I think it's mostly that. Now, should you always kind of have a, an attentive ear to those new things going on? Sure. But realistically, our lives are limited, and we've got we to gotta deal with what we, what's in front of us, I suppose. Do you want to say more about that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, and you're thinking here now of those outside of the church sort of looking at Christianity as intolerant and oppressive. You know, the re my sense is that you can update things on Facebook as much as you want, but that until those people encounter a compassionate Christian in the flesh, not virtually, um, that's going to be a hard prejudice to unseat, I think. Well, the rule of faith was exactly designed to articulate what unified Christians. So anything within those parameters was part of the one church. Anything outside wasn't. Now, sometimes you can't figure that out. And, well, sometimes you've got you to... Gotta, um, Sometimes you just need to say, no, that is not speaking Christian. Sometimes you need to say, you know, it's not exactly what I think, 
but it's close enough to what I think that I can accept that. When I speak to students about this, this is the example I use, and it's not very good for them anymore because they tend not to know the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, but I suspect a lot of you do. Um, you think of Tevye. When he's first presented with his daughter's desire to marry a man she loves, you know, he goes through this, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, and he eventually relents. And then um, second daughter wants to marry uh, an anarchist who's going off to Siberia. And again, he, you know, it's on the one hand, on the other hand, and he relents. The third daughter wants to marry a Gentile. And it's on the one hand, on the other hand. And finally he says, no, there is no other hand. You know, he could accept the first two as changes to his identity that didn't distort that identity. But the third thing he could, he said, it, he didn't say these words, um, but what was going on there was, if I make this compromise, I will have so distorted who I am that I will no longer be me. And he says no. Now, of course, as the, as the musical portrays, he keeps open a door um, for reconciliation down the road. But, but that's the sort of back and forth that we're called to do with each other. Now, we may blow it. In fact, we'll almost certainly blow it. But if our practices of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation are in good enough working order, we're going to catch those mistakes sooner rather than later. We're going to be able to repent of them and restore ourselves. It's when we forget to have that attentiveness that our sin gets not only not only flourishes, but becomes so deeply ingrained in us that we can't even see it anymore. That we wake up and we have somebody like the prophet Amos shouting at us that God hates your worship. And we can't recognize ourselves in what he's saying. Um, that when, when our bad practice gets so deeply cemented into us that it becomes very difficult to change. That's usually, what, that's usually because our our practices of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation have fallen into disuse and don't work properly. I, I, I think my music stand's being grabbed from me. Um, I'm happy to stay later, though, and talk with folks uh, if you've got more questions. At some point after this song, we have a benediction. Is that the yes. plan? All right.